This is the second edition of the KNON podcast with Reverend Marion Barnett, host of Church and Information Forum on KNON Radio. Since March 11th, 1986, a trailblazer of Black Talk Radio in Dallas and Fort Worth, and KNON's honored to have him on KNON. I'd like to begin the second part of this podcast by asking you, what would you advise to a person wanting to follow in your footsteps? Just pay attention to what's going on around you. Be conscious. Be thoughtful. Have a good attitude and uh, some love in your heart for people. You'll have to do all. You're going to have to know all people in order to work. Because in order to get some things done, you'll have to use all people. Work with them. Including the ones you don't like? Yeah. Especially See, the ones you don't like. Especially. That's why I said you're really going to work with a lot of time. Is you will have to learn to work with people. Although they, they treat you in a terrible way, we still have to learn to work with people. They work in a way that sometimes and say things to you that are utterly ridiculous, but you still have to work with people. You can't do it because there's always somebody out there, is what I found out that will help you, and is usually the person you least expect will help you. i never forget the day I was out watching the kids practice over at Sprague Field. That field was home field for, what is it, seven high schools and several middle schools. And all the kids were out there practicing. They were practicing track. And uh, I said, man, this place is too small. Then they had the Kimball Carter game. And it was too small for that. So I began to talk about it, and I came down. I talked with Robert Rabbit Thomas about it. He said, well, we got the same thing they got in North Dallas. I said, no, Lowe's is a lot larger than Sprague. It's a bigger venue. So I talked with another principal, a principal by the name of Joe Brew, and he says to me, uh, well, I'll call my PTA together and my booster club, we, we'll talk about it. Then I talked with Roosevelt Vaughn. He was a principal at Kimball. And uh, he showed, did the same thing. We began to work on something that people, everybody would tell me, say, man, they ain't not going to do that. You can't get that done. And what I wanted was a new sports facility to go in the southern sector of the city. I talked to several people, talked to Chad Wellery, and told them about it. But. The day that I got that thing to moving and really got it done, I talked to the most conservative, many would call racist, but I call him a conservative, member of the Dallas Independent School Board. His name was Dan Peavy. I saw him in the lot at 3700 Ross. That's where the school administration building was at that time. And I told him about Look, we need a new sports facility in the southern sector. He just looked at me. He didn't say a word. He let me explain to him all how overcrowded and there's different things. And he never said a word. Then when I finished talking, he said, you know what? That's a good idea. Go see what Rabbit think about it. I had already talked to Robert Rabbit Thomas. He was the athletic director. And I knew what he, how he felt about it. He was, he was for it. 
I said, I'll go up and talk to him. Then I talked to him. I came back and told him and held some meetings at Kimball and Carter and one meeting at Sunset. And uh, we came to, I brought a group of parents from Kimball and Carter down to the school board meeting and explained what was going on. This was Marvin Edwards' last meeting as the general superintendent. He was the first black superintendent we'd ever had in Dallas. He agreed, and uh, they agreed, and we voted. They voted unanimous, eight, one to abstain. Believe it or not, the person that abstained from it got the thing put in his district. <laughs> they voted to pass this, and it took some time because after Marvin Edwards left, we had another superintendent come that did not work well at all. Then another one didn't work well. But they brought in Mike Moses to be general superintendent and talked to Mike Moses about it. He was for it and everything. That was the only way we were going to get a bond package passed to have that athletic facility in there. It was working with those that agreed and those that didn't agree mm-hmm. to try to bring everybody on board. Yes. Because had I was waiting on just people to agree, the people you thought would agree with me, would have worked with me, were the people that was that had little faith that it would ever come about. But I had faith. I just felt that this could work. Because at the time, the schools in North Dallas had faded down. They weren't participating in sports like kids in the southern sector at the time. Carter High School, Kimball High School, Carter had won state in football and all it was it was red hot out there. It was time for it. And they agreed, and it got built. And it shows me that you got to work with people. The person everybody in the world would have told me, he's not going to kill it, he's not going to go for nothing being put out there in Oak Cliff or South Dallas, he'd be against it. That was Dan Peavy, they thought. But that's the man that pushed it. <laughs> he got it done for me. The thing that can deflate hate is love. Mm-hmm. There's nothing more frustrating for someone trying to promote hate, spread hate, use hate as a logic, than for that person to be met with love. That's so true. I should have known, I should have thought in that direction at first, because when I read about Jesus at the well, the woman was a Samaritan, and uh, they did not like Jews. So how Jesus broke the whole thing down, Jesus asked the lady for a drink of water. He asked his enemy to give him a drink of water. It stuns her so. She told him, oh, we're not supposed to do it. We don't like it. But she gave him the water, and it broke down that barrier. And she ran into the city and told everybody about a man that had told her all about her life. He broke that barrier down by asking his enemy for a favor. So when I saw Dan Peavy there and... Uh, Ask him for a favor. Most people said, now, this Negro got to be crazy asking people. <laughs> but it worked. It worked. It's and communication. Communicate. See, you, you have to learn how to work with all people, work with everybody. You never know who's going to help you. You never know who will be on your side. You just never know. And that is what you would advise to somebody wanting to follow in your footsteps. Well, let, let's say this. Take West Dallas. The people that really got the money and was going to do more had not Bush 41 not lost the election to Clinton was the Bush Republican administration 
John Fulton and and I, we took a group up to Washington and talked to him. They'd sent a guy named Bow down here to talk with us, our liaison. This was the secretary of HUD, sent him down there, an undersecretary, to work with us down here. They committed, I was talking about. He said, I tell you what, preacher, I'm going to get you $350 million to rebuild West Dallas. And that was a shocker because we had been working with the Democrats and uh, Mika Leland and uh, Martin Frost. We had been working with them. But they committed the money to rebuild West Dallas. Now, Bush lost the election to Clinton. So that killed that because it hadn't come about. But they were going to do it. They were definitely going to do it. And you wouldn't have never dreamed the amount of money they were going to put out there from a Republican senator. I mean, well, he was a administration. administration. You wouldn't have never dreamed that. Those were some different types of Republicans than we have today. Yeah, oh, definitely. Oh, Lord, yes. Who are the most promising leaders of today? Nationally, locally, or what? And I'll, I'll, let's, let's start with nationally and then go to locally. What young leader? The young lady up there, does she, she live in the Bronx in New York City, or is it? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yes. I predict today. She'll be president one day. She'll be president. And she just keep her nose to the grind. I don't believe, nobody knows, I don't have a crystal ball, but I don't think she'd sell out. She's made some mistakes, yes, because she was a young congresswoman. Young. She was, who was she, 26, 28, when she went in there? Yes. Right now, she says some bad things, wrong things. Right now, she's made mistakes. She's a young person, but her vision is clear. She has a clear vision. And I think within 12 years, she'll be president. I think she'll make it. I think she'll make it. And I think she would be a very good president. She's the type of person that uh, that's a rare person. She has a lot going for her, and she knows how to communicate. She seems to just love people. I predict that uh, Ms. Cortez will be president one day. And on the local level? You know... I've been deeply hurt over a particular person that I really wanted to be a very shining good example for Dallas. But I'm not going to lie. He's disappointed me. Your mayor. Eric Johnson. I pushed for him to run for that state house seat out that he had out in West Dallas and into North Dallas. I've had him on my program. But uh, there have been some decisions that he made, I just think, well, he just disappointed me. I haven't said anything about him on the air, believe it or not. I've never said No, I'm I, I get on or catch one doing that. I usually ride him from that point. But that has been a disappointing thing to, for me. Young people on the horizon, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who. who because we have become so into money and things. We, too many people have moved out of Dallas, moved into suburbs. When the hole in the donut is where many of the grants, different things for major metropolitan areas come. 
They will not come to some little small city in the suburbs. This thing still centers around Dallas. And we still need somebody. I don't care what comes down. You need someone that's going to be powerful in Dallas. And right now, I, I don't know. If it's someone, I sure like to know. What do you see in the future of today's protest movements, um, Black Lives Matter, the different organizing that's happening today, and where that's going? It's going in different directions for the simple fact. That many whites did not help us during the Civil Rights Movement. Whites have come along. But that's real good. But you've had some whites to come and join in with that that did not have the best things at heart. You've had some to come in and burn and destroy. That gives the press and others, conservatives, an opportunity to say, see, see, that's no good. That's no good. They, 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 they're violent. No, here's the thing. They're worried us about us burning down the donut shop when we're dying. We're dying. They're worried about a business. We're worried about life. But to see, I want to see after this election, how well will those young whites that have gotten out there, will they transfer those that protest into voting? When they go to the polls, will they work? I think so. I think that's where the rubber will meet the road on my birthday, November 3rd. That's, that's your birthday. That's my birthday. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's where the, the rubber will meet the road. I think uh, they can convince people, if any of them were going out and doing looting and burning or something, convince them that's not you, what you're doing. Is not, I'm not here to try to please the power structure, but I am trying to keep the power structure, uh, keep issues away out of their pockets. Because when you do certain things, they can always run and scream and holler, look, you're not authentic because you're doing other things. Well, they they know how to deal with that. They they know they have the police and the armies and the the show of force to deal with force. That's Mm -hmm. what they know. But the civil rights struggle seems to have been won with sit-ins, with with nonviolent movements that left the powers to be just stunned, and they didn't know how to deal with that necessarily. Well, here's what here was what was happening. You had a, a new phenomenon had taken over for the first time in the history of the world: television. See. The best friends the civil rights movement had were people like Bull Connors. When they would show Bull Connors, the sheriff there down there in Alabama, show how he was a big fat guy, mean, looked nasty. <laughs> they showed him on television talking about how he hate black folks and they ain't going to never be free here and sicking dogs them. That changed America. <laughs> that really did. So that's that's similar to what we have today with everybody has a camera in yeah, their pocket. That's it. You only had one camera then. They caught would catch bull commas oh, out there at the Edmund Pettus Bridge and all. But when white people saw Burl Connors, a lot of them got ashamed. <laughs> they were ashamed. Do you think that's similar to when white people saw what happened to George Floyd? Same thing. Same thing. 
Same thing. It changed a lot of people's mind. We had been screaming and hollering these things were happening to us all these years, but they never saw it. So they always would take the word of the police department. They're lying. Police will not do such things as, as they say they're doing. But when they got a chance to see him keep his knee on this man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds and kill him, what more proof did you need? So the cell phone cameras equal almost to television. It does. They do. In the, in, in the days of that movement, in mm-hmm. today's movement mm-hmm. for social justice, it's the cell phone camera. Yes. And that the, the citizens see, the capture c- this. Civil rights movement would have never happened way did without the invention of the television. They began to see those water hoses, you know, how powerful they are. They were spraying those water holes on young girls and kids and knocking them over with, with the power of that water. Seen uh, vicious dogs sicked on these people. Saw them with the billy clubs beating them. America got a chance to see that. That's what changed it. That's what changed it. And when America saw that and, and we had guts enough to stand up and do things right, and then when they voted in the 64 civil rights, blacks in that was up north, northeast, and the west coast, woke up. See, they, see, it was a thought in America that all the hell blacks was catching was in the south. That wasn't true. But even blacks up, to, up north and in the west pretended they were even freer than we was in the south. That was the thinking. But when they saw with the stroke of a few pens, 14 pens that London Johnson signed the Civil Rights Bill with, and we had now overnight the same rights that they had in New York or California, blacks said, well, we began to realize they didn't have anything either. And that's when rioting started in 64, 65, 68, right long in that time. During that time. That's when rioting started, and they began to recognize how brutal the police had been toward them and everything else. And uh, this is what started the Watts riots, the Detroit riots, riots all over this nation. Do you think America still has guts enough to stand up for social justice? Yeah. Why yes. should we have hope? Uh, Dave, I just called you Dave. I've seen the day and time. I would have had to call you Mr. Dave. <laughs> really, it was just that bad. After all these years and the things I've seen go happen, I, I might be wrong, but I really believe that's a far better day coming. I really believe. It's not going to be easy. It's gonna, still going to take some intestinal fortitude to push forward. But I see, yeah, it's going to change. It's, it's going to change. When I saw those Young people out there marching together, walking together. My phone was just ringing, ringing, ringing. When are you going to get out there? When are you going to get out and lead a march? Look, I try to tell them, look, I'm 72 years old. I can't even come out and sometimes speak. But marching up and down the streets, around this block, up around, no, I can't do that. It's, it's life. You get weaker, but you get wiser. Wiser now than I was then. And see, God... So he blessed youth because sometimes we can be so silly and crazy and do things that uh, he has to watch over us. But when you get older and wiser, you can do things 
but you don't have the strength you once had. You it, just don't have it. It becomes time for the next generation to take the mantle. Those of us who have a baton, we, we're ready to pass it. But you got to first find some people that's really going to be serious. See, we have been so institutionalized into, into just making money. It's hard to find people that are just people that will work for humanity. Take Martin Luther King. man had a Ph.D. at 26 years old. He could have made money in that day and time. Riverside Church wanted Dr. King. He could have gone and passed Riverside. You, are you familiar with Riverside in New York City? No. Oh, that's a church started by nothing but millionaires, white well, millionaires. They, he could have been the pastor and drew a big, pastor that big church, got a big salary and been a, a big man. But he chose to go to the streets rather than that big pulpit. Materialism is the blinders mm-hmm. that cause people to settle. Yes. That shiny new object will help you overlook the injustices upon yourself and others Mm -hmm. in that that materialistic pursuit. Right. That's what will cause too many to fail. Now, I hope I'm wrong, but I hope they don't become so materialistic. But I see some hope. Take guys like Jay-Z and take wife Beyonce. They give a lot of money for the civil rights movement. They have sense enough to know it was the everyday people out in the streets marching that it may help them to get to where they are. Those who came out of that old civil rights movement didn't seem to appreciate those who went into the streets and marched for them to get that good job, that high position. Didn't seem to appreciate it. Until it was started to be taken away Away from from them. Then they ready to go back and join hands with those people. Because when they, I got mine. I got, they they, they began to move. Some moved to the suburbs and different things like that. And they didn't care anything about people. Talking about them folk, those folk over in in the ghetto. Those folks. Where they come from. Those folks are all of us. Yes. All all of us are impacted. Mm Mm-hmm. When any of us are oppressed. That's right. Everybody going to feel it some kind of way. And this is what, uh, what I think the, the people will come together and march together, walk together, and stay in unity, care about everyone. It's just like, I don't know what, I don't know. To me, this country didn't raise enough sand. When Trump put, these, put those children in cages, like he put an animal. No, oh my God, how in the world is robbery I, of our humanity? Yes, putting up a wall. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what that's all about. It's just that we just don't seem, some ways, to be as cognitively responsible as we once was. It, it came and it went, but it needs to come back. Don't treat people like dogs, and uh. It's just that uh, we have to stay vigilant. Now, I hope we don't become so comfortable if we make it and get some of the things we want, that we become comfortable, because evil will ever be present. We must always remember that. Evil, evil will never stop 
until it destroy itself. This is how evil we are. It'll have to destroy itself. And uh, we just somehow have to hope and pray. The K-N-O-N stay on there. Get good people to still keep coming through here. I just hope K-N-O-N never gets tainted <laughs> by something that uh, it would hate. I hope it keeps its, its goals. I hope it never changes its goals. Well, can't, it may can't, change tactics, but it don't change your goals. As long as KNON has the people, and and the people running KNON believe in the people mm-hmm. and the voice of the people, KNON will continue to move forward for the people. Let's discuss some of the topics that were discussed on your show over the years, and what you recall about the topics and the way they were covered on your show. So I'm just going to say the name of some topics and um, tell us a little bit about how they may have been discussed on your show or or maybe if they were at all. Um, I'm going to start with a topic that is actually an individual, Jesse Jackson. Now, Jesse was on my show one day. I had he and Al Sharpton together on my show. They were in a meeting in downtown Dallas, and they were staying uh, at the Ramadi Inn on Ackert at the time. And I called them and... Caught them in their room, and Jesse, they talk. They talk well. What'd you talk about? Basically, just what was going on in society at that time. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. That's been so long ago. Uh, exactly what we talked about. Al was not very, very popular at the time. Jesse was the big man. And uh, Jesse always talked about education, continued to work together, we even talked about self-initiative that day. Uh, self-initiative would go in the form of uh, being us going, being more business-minded and different things like that. And uh, he had talked about this was after his second run, if I remember right. It was. It was after his second run for president. And uh, he talked about uh, helping blacks to go into business, getting loans. Getting, making responsibility and being responsible for ourselves. Self-initiative. Just do things that we should be doing for ourselves and looking out for ourselves. But it would take reparations in order to get that done. And that's, that's what we, I didn't, that interview, my interview with Jesse wasn't very long. It wasn't about 10 minutes. They had another meeting to go to. I stayed with Al, Al about 10 minutes. So we've talked about the civil rights movement in its early days. Uh, let's talk about civil rights movement of the 80s and 90s. Civil rights had quieted down, believe it or not. It had quieted down. Civil rights didn't really heat up. Now, in Dallas, you had some movements. When they say you had no movement in Dallas, that's not true. It did. You did. But nationally, civil rights have just come back and it, what brought it back was police shootings. When you have to look at that list and go back and remember what years all of this really started. But here in the 21st century, it's more or less like what it was in the 60s. We had some years where we've always had some type of civil rights movement, but it wasn't hot like it is now and like it was in the 60s. From the 60s. Now, i tell you what really brought it started things back, I have to remember. In Los Angeles, the beating 
with that camera. The, the, these Rodney King. Rodney King. These cameras <laughs> has brought the brought the civil rights movement. That's what brought it back in the sixties. Well, I mean that, that was in uh, what year was that? Uh, uh, Rodney King was the eighties, I believe. Well, whenever that that happened, things start evolving again. Let's uh, let's go to New York City and uh, for the next topic, Central Park Five. This was something that uh, our present-day president took out a big ad in the what, New York Times, saying they should be put to death and all of this, and uh, saying that, yes, these five young black boys uh, raped this white woman. But he never protracted that thing when they were found not guilty because the doctors checked the lady and found the only semen that was in her was that of her boyfriend and found out these Young men did not do this. And that brought about some a whole lot of ruckus. But the thing that really, that I don't know, we never gotten a ruling on that, was the Tawana Brawley situation. When she was supposed to have been raped in Central Park also, wasn't it? You, you don't remember that case, Tawana Brawley? No, I do not. That's what brought Al Sharpton on. I'll have to go back, and we have to discuss that. I have to go back and read that one. We have to understand just certain things here and there. I'm going to do Diallo, the police in New York. They took what was, was, he was the one with the broom handle. They stuck that all up in him 43 times, and he got shot so many times. There have been certain things, sparks, die down. But seems seemingly uh, the Floyd situation has really caught on and sparked not just a moment, but a movement. We've had quite a few moments. They died out. But I think this one here is going to push on a little longer, a little bit longer, to get anything like it was in, in the 60s. Next topic, Iran-Contra. Well, drug dealers sure have had a lot. Made a lot of money. <laughs> Bush was over the CIA, remember? And uh, they used Miami, Florida, Los Angeles as trial cities to test cocaine and crack cocaine. And they traded weapons in there. Did you discuss that topic on your show at all? Yeah. They would use these things to really change a lot in America, and it did. It changed. And what it did was this. The greatest thing that you asked me a minute ago, I can put it in there now. It's just now things are coming to me now. Because the greatest thing that was really happened in America that really captured the whole nation was the so-called war on drugs. Here... That Iran-Contra thing. They, they traded weapons. We gave them weapons. They, I guess they gave them cocaine and different things. And they used the city of Los Angeles, used the city of Miami, to test and see how crack cocaine would work. And since that thing started, and it started on something that was frivolous, as simple as a basketball player, then bias who had been drafted by the Boston Celtics first round. And he OD'd the next day after he got drafted. And that's what brought on this whole thing about drugs. And when we see 
how there has never been a war on drugs. Iran, Contra, well, I don't know. We discussed it. We had this guy on from Washington, and he discussed it and said, this whole thing is nothing but a conspiracy. And he called George Bush's name on the air and said that we're going to find out. It's not going to solve anything. It's going to make things better. It's going to make Congress even act crazy. And he was right. You know who led the charge on making crack cocaine a harsher sentence than regular cocaine? Who? Take a good guess. <laughs> you guessed this one. Uh, Clinton? Biden? <laughs> Joe Biden. He led, the, he led the thing. Clinton signed that he was the president. But Biden, liberal senators, was for it. At first, the Republicans drug their feet on it. They said, no, nah, no. Nah. Then they, they said, wait a minute. Look, look. Then they realized who would be taking Who was going to jail. Yeah. They, oh, yeah, that's a good thing. They, they <laughs> fell in love with it when they found out who really was going to suffer the brunt of this stick. And this is how it all came about. And this is how our families, to a great extent, black families, were destroyed. Young black girls had hardly, so many of them had nobody to marry because all the guys were either dead or in prison. And this is the worst grudge that we have ever come across in America. And in fact, it was Crack cocaine. Yeah. It was worse than slavery in many ways. It was terrible. It was in every little city, every little hamlet, every town, every big city, every alley, every village. It was there. And it all came by swapping drugs for guns. This is all how this thing came about. And this guy said on my show, George Bush, the United States government, others powerful people in this nation is behind this. This is a setup to really get the black community. And guess what? We figured it out now. He wasn't lying. Some people call it, no, they, they disagree with it. But most everybody would agree with what this man said. That's been, since I've definitely been on the air and on KNOM, that has been by far, no, that's not a challenge. Anything was as terrible as these drive-by shootings, the giving of crack cocaine to children, giving little boys, they were little pack mules and different things like this. They used little girls, little children as pack mules. The drugs themselves, and it, it, it was the most addictive thing we'd ever seen. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. But they would cook it and, and uh, make it one puff. In many times, in many, many cases, one puff, you were hit, hooked on it. Never seen nothing like this. Yeah. We talked, oh, yes, I talked about it quite a bit. Next topic, Oklahoma City bombing. Oh, well, when it first happened, it was unbelievable because they said it was a daycare, I think, on what, about the second floor. Ground floor. Your ground floor was the ground floor. There, why would you want to blow up the children? And then they, then they said they believe it was some followers. Louis Farrakhan did it. Then they said it was some followers of some Islamic group 
that was had come in from overseas that did it. They were blaming all kinds of people, blaming everybody right after it first happened. But what they found, they found this guy zooming up one of the highways outside of going up out of Oklahoma City, speeding. They pulled him over and found out it was it was a white male, Timothy McVeigh, was guilty of doing it. It shows that anything that's terrible that happens, it's people are so prejudiced. They just blame people they don't like. Now, I never thought it was. After I, I never thought we'd do it because black people, really, that's really not our, 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 our culture is this. If you hit me, I'm going to get you back. But I'm not going out there and blow up a whole bunch of folk <laughs> that haven't bothered me. And I'm trying to think, have there been anything in where we've blown up people because somebody bothered us. We kill a whole lot of innocent folks. That's just not, that hasn't been our nature over the years. And you go back and say, Trish, that's just not our nature. We don't do things like this. But this Timothy McVeigh was a national, and I'm trying to remember, that was something there. He was mad with. Anti-government. Yeah. Yeah, he was angry with the government about something, that he would go out and blow up a building, innocent people, and let alone think about innocent children, small children. He would go do something like that. And uh, we had looked at that. We talked about it, and son tried to I called in that morning because that morning, second to nine eleven was one of the toughest mornings I, I had on radio. Next topic, let's talk about nine eleven. Yeah. I was on the air, and a young lady that was the uh, uh, news director here, uh, what was her name? You remember? Uh, Shawanda? Yeah, Shawanda Riley. Ran into the studio and said, the World Trade Center, an airplane just flew into it. I told her, I said, well, maybe those buildings are awfully tall, and maybe that plane, you know, hit it. Because it wouldn't surprise I had been up, I used to go over to eat in that restaurant in that building in the World Trade Center. That was the first one to go down. I used to eat in that building. I've eaten there. It didn't surprise me. And then Peter and I went back to talking about civil rights and it said, well, we'll pray for those who are on that plane and in the building. Then she ran back into uh, about 810. She ran back into the street. Another plane has hit that other tower. To, World Trade. I said, I know then we are not, we're on the attack now. It's not going to be two, two accidents going to happen like that. And that's where we start talking. And uh, we had cut a radio on and different things. That was something. And they began to play music and uh, different things. And we began to talk about this. This was a shock because probably the only time I had had something to shock me on a national story like that was the death of John F. Kennedy. I was taking a biology exam when I heard over the, the principal come over the PA system and said, President Kennedy has just got shot in Dallas. Woof. And see, at that time, America wasn't used to turmoil and shocks like, that, like it is today. It was just something that, that was the first time I ever heard anything that tremendous in my life. When I heard Kennedy, then I hear this uh, World Trade Center, and then people start trying to wonder who did it, and uh, people start calling in. 
Uh-huh. I bet them, they, they turn those Russians loose. The Russians, they, they, they just say it's the Russians that hit the, hit the building and shot, shot some down. I say, no, they were airplanes and different things we didn't know what was going on. Then they said the bomb, the uh, Pentagon been hit. All of a sudden, people said, ah, we believe it's World War Three is starting. They, they would think, a nuclear bomb is just a hit. And then everybody was silent, calling, screaming, where's the president? Nobody knew where the president was. Bush <laughs> was underground in some bunker in, uh, I think, Shreveport, somewhere around here. He had been in Florida somewhere. But then people were calling, saying some everything. And they thought the world was coming to an end, same way they did with Kennedy and things like that. It was just, it was unbelievable. Then... All of a sudden, we saw people start jumping out of the building. And, man, I'm talking about they were way up there, mm-hmm. jumping out of the building. I was announcing this. I stayed on the air till about, oh, 11, 11.30. And I was supposed to got off. I was on from 8 to 9. I stayed till about 11.30. Finally, somebody came in that was willing to take the mic because the programming just, I don't know what happened. I think a blues show would come on after me. Yes. I don't think they showed up. So I just stayed there. And I think Sweet went, Willie Mitchell came on after you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he did. You're right. But uh, also, what's the guy's name? He's dead now. Louisiana Red. Louisiana Red. Yeah. He came on. He used to come on after me also. It was a day that's just, I don't know. I drove home and I don't remember turning the corner. I don't know. I don't remember turning, I don't remember getting on the freeway, anything. All I know is I was pulling up from my house and everything. It was just, I don't know, it was, uh, uh, people were calling in, people were calling in crying and different things. Uh, just, they called in and just, well, as some said, we deserved it. We probably been messing with somebody else and they don't know what we don't know. It was different things, different things. That and... Those are some of the most traumatic things that ever happened. So next topic, Hurricane Katrina. That was an interesting date because I came on that morning and we had, we, the hurricane had missed. It really, the hurricane didn't flood New York. It was the blowing up of that levee. It was the levees giving. And. Levees break. Yes, people were calling and you had some people from, uh, Louisiana hadn't made it to Dallas, and they would stand with people, and they would call in and say, well, we heard a giant explosion. And some tried to say, well, no, nah, that was just a levee breaking. I believe it was an explosion for the simple fact. That levee is dirt. I've been across the, that, that levee. That's the, the industrial canal. I've been across that several times. And uh, I can't see any dirt making that kind of noise, just being split, water coming out, going out into that lower ninth ward. And I went over there in the after, in listening, and the, they believe that there are a lot of people that called in and believe that this was, the levee was blown to save the other side of the levee because the other side was a white community. And this other side, where the lower ninth ward, was a black community, and they blew it up, but the water would come out on this side. I don't know. That was something. That was a catastrophe. They said Katrina was going to hit it, and 
Water was going to be high. Water was high as they said it was going to be in certain parts of New Orleans. But guess where? It didn't flood. Guess where? The quarter. The fresh water. Because it was higher up. Yeah. That's the highest place in New Orleans. They said the water wasn't even ankle deep. Figuratively and literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it sure is figuratively. <laughs> it's the highest place in New Orleans. <laughs> Maybe the highest place in America. Yeah. But they didn't flood it, Lower Ninth Ward. Water was standing. People on top of houses. The president never did respond that I know of uh, the, until the, the, that he got in Air Force One and going to take a look at it from 10,000 feet up, look down at it. They, he didn't respond. People talked about that. And to see those people, you know, sitting on the roofs, trying to flag uh, boats down different and you can't make me believe the most powerful country in the world couldn't do a far better job of rescuing people, of rescuing, getting them out of there. Police were shooting black people going across the bridge, who yep. were trying to get out of there. You know, uh, these things, it was some traumatic things, but uh, you'd have to hear the people calling and talking to me. And uh, they were hurting. One people said they came in a car with 16 people in it. <laughs> Can you believe? In one car, hmm. they got here. They just had to get out of there. They had to get out. But a whole lot of people didn't have cars. They couldn't get out of New Orleans. It was almost like a a big death trap. They stayed there in the dome and different things, but a lot of people died. A lot of people died in the dome. They were still people dying a long time after that flood. I'm trying to think of the football player's name. He had a son that uh, went to Carter, and he was telling me, see, his mother died. He was a pro football player. His mother died there in, in that flood down there. People were dying in the hospitals that, you know, just they didn't have. They had to escape from some They were hospital. trapped. Yeah, they were trapped. Trapped yeah. in the hospital, ran, didn't have power, and didn't no, have any anything. resources. No. It was a terrible situation. It was a terrible situation that just seemed like there was no energy to respond to such a situation like that. Uh, now, could that ever happen again? Could, could a president ever get away with ignoring a situation like that? Because Bush basically ignored it. Just said he couldn't do a natural disaster like this. And then when you go spy it out, you're going to spy it out from a 747, 10,000 feet high? Oh, come on. What can you tell? <laughs> Who are you kidding? Let's go ahead and um, wrap up the topics. And I just got a couple more questions. Mm -hmm. What were the most important topics for you over the years? Your top three. Oh, topics that people wanted to really talk about the most that the people were really concerned about. It would either have been drugs or that epidemic that we had, teenage pregnancy. I can remember those. If something come up, it'll have to come up to me later. So much, so many things have come up. But I, those stand out in my mind that uh, it just seemed like uh, see, that used to be taboo to talk about certain things. Now, you may not believe it, but there were certain things black people were a whole lot more conservative on than white people. When it came to things like uh, 
teenage pregnancy and things like that, boy, that was uh, that was showing up. That was taboo in the black community. White people would be more open. They would talk more open about that. We had this thing when AIDS came. AIDS is one of the big stickers. People would call in and say some terrible things about homosexuals and everything. I even had them to call in, hollering this, hope this stuff kill all them, them homosexuals. They called them, they had other names for them. That really stuck in my mind when the, when the AIDS crisis hit. That was what, 80s? Yes, yeah. Yeah. That's when I first came on. AIDS was really being talked about a whole lot. Talk about that. And they would talk about police were shooting a lot of black people. You know what? Issues, they like fashions. They come and go. They come, get big, go away. But believe me, it'll come back, it'll come back again. These issues like that. They we've gone through so much, so many things. Those are the ones that I can remember. Now I'll go home, I'll get in my car, start heading toward my house. A thousand issues will hit me. <laughs> it will. It'll come back to my memory. Because it's been some things, it's been some things, it's been some things. Well, maybe yeah. we'll have to um, have well, some series of follow-ups talking specifically about some some of the issues that warrant um, a longer conversation than, mm-hmm. than we're afforded in this case. Okay. Um, well, that, that's what's needed because it, things come to my mind, then it goes, and then it come back. And it has been some tremendous issues well, that I, I can't think of right now. I just well, can't. three decades on the air, and things, mm-hmm. things happen. Yeah. A lot of things happen. A whole lot of things have happened. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. I would like to thank you for joining me today for this yeah. podcast. I would like to encourage people to tune in to KNON for Church and Information Forum with Reverend Marion Barnett, Saturdays, 7 to 9 a.m. here on KNON. And is there anything else that you'd like to say or leave our podcast listeners with? Well, it has been a wonderful time being with you because I'm talking with people. I love to uh, communicate with people. It's being. I enjoy it. It's been some hard times. It's been some hurtful things that have happened, but we still had to discuss them. It seems like a lot of times, most times, when we can get it out and talk about it, it sort of kind of cleanses us out a little bit. Therapeutic. Yeah, very much so. Please stay tuned to us. If it's an issue that's of interest to people, I'll discuss it, okay? (laughs) This is Dave Chaos, and that will conclude our podcast with Reverend Marion Barnett from Church and Information Forum, part of KNON series, a history podcast where we're talking to KNON talent that's been at this station since the station began. Thank you again for listening to this podcast, and... The voice of the people will have more.